episode 114, Social Work in Public Health and Disaster Response on the Social Workers Rise podcast. Hello, my name is Katherine Moore, social worker, mom, coffee lover, and founder of Social Workers Rise, where we inspire social workers to connect, expand their knowledge, and change more lives than they ever thought possible. I'm so excited you found my podcast. We will talk everything social work on every level from micro to macro. We will hear the stories of social workers who are doing big things, learn new skills, and most importantly, give you actionable steps to make a difference today. Let's go. Hello, and welcome to the Social Workers Rise podcast. If you don't know me, I am Katherine Moore, an LCSW based out of California, and we've been doing the Social Work podcast for a long time, about three years now, and it's been a lot of fun. This is our 114th episode, and I'm really excited for this episode because we're going to be talking about social work in public health and disaster response, and this is really cool because it uses clinical skills on a macro level in a crisis response situation, which is, it it blends all the things, right? It also has policy involved, training, I mean, all of the things. So we're going to get into this conversation with Stephanie Felder. She is a PhD and LCSW, and she is actually the chief licensed clinical social worker with the Commission's Corps of the U.S. Public Health Service. And she's going to tell us exactly what all of that means. Uh, Before we hop into this episode, I do want to make sure that you know about the RISE directory. If you are at all involved in clinical supervision, then you definitely need to go check out the RISE directory. You can find your clinical supervisor here, If you are a clinical supervisor, you can create your listing for free. There's also contracts, templates, and resources on the website at risedirectory.com. Definitely go check that out. The other quick announcement that I wanted to let you know about is my upcoming webinar on February 21st. It's called Success in Clinical Social Work. And this is a going to be an amazing webinar. You definitely, definitely need to be there because I'm going to be sharing everything that I have learned over the past 13 years in my social work career as far as how to market yourself, how to increase your income, how to get your foot in the door. Because when I graduated with my social work degree, it was in the height of the last recession. And I don't know that we're officially in a recession right now, but it's shaky, right? It's shaky. And I just remember back then, I really didn't know anything. I didn't know how to position myself. I didn't know how to network with people who might be able to get me jobs. I didn't know how to really put myself out there so that people would come to me and offer me jobs and how to communicate my expertise I needed just more information on the whole process of getting licensed. How does this work exactly? Because it's so complicated. And also, too, I had no idea about how to really stay well as a social worker and how to deal with all of the 
trauma that is sure to come your way. So I put all of these things into one two-hour workshop for you. It's going to be amazing. I promise you, I will not let you down. The link to register is in the show notes. It's going to be on February 21st, 2023. This is live. However, if you can't make the live, I will send the recording to you. So open up your show notes right now. Click on the link and get your ticket. Register right now. All right. With that said, let's hop into this interview. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Social Workers Rise. Today, I'm really excited. We are here with Commander Stephanie Felder. Welcome to the podcast, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, I'm excited to be here too. We love hearing from social workers who are doing quote non-traditional social work and you are like the chief social worker, which I think is really cool. Um, <laughs> I'm wondering how, or I mean, why did you become a social worker to begin with? Okay, well, I was inspired to the field by my father, but not in the traditional sense. Um, so my father was a sharecropper in South Carolina, and he did not get to finish grade school, but I will say he is one of the smartest and um, most giving man that I know, um, although the world did not give him much back. Um, so most people know that sharecropping started in the early 1870s, but in South Carolina, um, I grew up in Florence. It continued into the 80s and the 90s when I was born. And at that time, I didn't fully understand it, but now I recognize that um, my family faced social injustice, racism, and discrimination, yet through all of that, um, remain very resilient. And uh, I go back to Hurricane Hugo in 1989, and, um, and this is um, tying it back to you know, why I became a social worker, and Hurricane Hugo was horrible in South Carolina in that area. The trees were down in the road, um, you know, power was out, no electricity. And so uh, my father, in the winter, he would uh, cut wood and sell the wood because many people had chimneys to keep warm in the wintertime. And so he had a bunch of chainsaws. So he called his friends, he got them over there and they cleared the roads so people could travel. And we went door to door checking on people, especially elderly people, to make sure that they would have food because we had gas. And so my dad grilled, um, he had a gas like barrel, large grill, so he grilled food. And then we had gas inside of our house so we could cook food as well. So that was my first lesson in disaster response and recovery. Did not realize it at that time, but um, that is it's a key memory for me and it, when I reflect on it, I understand why I became a social worker. It's because of that. Yeah, that's powerful. So how old were you at that time? Um, I was like six. Yeah, about six years old. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Those, when you survive a natural disaster, it really puts things in perspective and it changes you forever. I mean, it's something that Absolutely. you always remember. Yeah. yeah. And it's, um, 
a natural disaster is one of the big reasons why I started to become a social worker because my house burned down in a wildfire when I was uh, mm. six, 15, 16 years old. Yeah. Oh, wow. And so, wow. you know, it, it changes you to the core of who you are to see your entire neighborhood, like your, what you know to be your whole life to just be gone or destroyed. Be gone. Yeah. Flattened trees everywhere. And, you know, you, I mean, we came outside and I was like, wow, like this is not home anymore. And then for my dad to say, come on, we're going out there. And I'm like, what are we going to do? And he said, we're going to cut these trees so we can get to people. And I remember, you know, at school, they told us about the hurricanes and, you know, they would come and help. And I remember I said, daddy, they might come and save us. And he said, he said, nobody's going to save you. <laughs> he was like, we have to save ourselves. He was definitely um, realistic and nobody, he was right. Nobody came, nobody came because we were outside of the Florence city. We were in like the very rural country area. So they had to take care of the city part before they could even think about getting into the country. So, yeah. Yeah. I had a similar experience and yeah, nobody came. I wonder, does that influence you and your work and your career? to think that Absolutely. you need to be the one because no one's going to come save us. Yes, absolutely. And many times, even when I'm deployed, especially when things get hard and when I did my first um, hurricane deployment, which was in the Carolinas, um, that memory stuck to me. Like as I was meeting with patients and clients, I mean, it always, I can replay that in my mind. And I'm looking at these people as they are being rushed to the shelter because either they have no home anymore or um, they have medical needs that the needs aren't high enough to be in a hospital and the hospitals are full anyway during these emergencies, but, um, but they need some sort of medical care. And so I think about it all the time because I'm thinking to myself, like they had to evacuate and now they're here. And they're looking for us to help them, not necessarily save them, but to help them in some form or fashion. And that's what I'm doing. And it reminds me every time I think of that. So, yeah, yeah that's that's so powerful. I'm wondering, you know, you kind of touched, you gave us a little teaser about what your role is, but you know, what mm -hmm. what is your current role as the chief licensed clinical social worker, and like, what does this entail? Yes. Okay. So every time I hear that title, it, I have to break it down in so many pieces, even for myself. So I am the chief social worker in the office of the Surgeon General at Commission Court Headquarters, and I am a part of the Public Health Emergency Response Strike Team, and we call it FIRST. Um, so this team was designed to respond to public health emergencies and disasters within eight hours. So when they think about us, they call us speed because we are the first to hit the ground. Um, to give you some context, the United States Public Health Service Commission Corps is one of the nation's eight uniform services. Do you do you know the all of the uniform services? I know you know some of them. Yeah, I could probably name them. I don't know if I could name all eight though. It's like a pop quiz. Okay, Army. <laughs> yeah, it is, right? Yeah, I'm quizzing you here. So Army, I know you thought of that one, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard. So we have five. Then you have the Space Guard, 
And then we have NOAA, which is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. We just call them NOAA because it's too long. And then you have the United States Public Health Service. And so NOAA and the United States Public Health Service, um, we are not combat, but we are a part of those uniformed services. So everybody knows the main ones like the Army and the Navy and the Air Force, Coast Guard, and people even know Space Force too. Um, but a lot of times they don't know about NOAA and the Public Health Service. Well, uh, we are important because we are the only branch um, that has a mission to protect, promote, and advance the health and safety of the nation out of all eight of those. That is our primary mission. Um, so we have officers that serve all over the Department of Health and Human Services. So agencies that you would know like SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, I worked there before, um, CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, uh, FDA, the Food Drug Administration, CDC, um, so agencies like that, and also external agencies like BOP, um, uh, Department of Defense, so different agencies. So we have, we have officers in all of these agencies, and we have many different disciplines. We have behavioral health like myself, licensed clinical social workers, psychologists, doctors, nurses, dentists, pharmacists, engineers and other disciplines as well and you need uh, you may you may be thinking well that you know a lot of disciplines a lot of different areas but you really need all of those people all of those disciplines and all of those agencies when you are dealing with public health emergencies and disasters their key roles from all of those agencies FAMSA, FDA, CDC, DOD like everybody comes to the table when there's a huge um public health emergency or disaster. And so to get to your question, um, as a chief licensed clinical social worker, so I'm stationed with the Office of the Surgeon General uh, in headquarters, and my responsibility is to lead a behavioral health team to ensure that we have the capability to respond, to respond rapidly to regional, national, and global public health emergencies and disasters within that eight hours of notification. Another part of my job that I think I may love the most is the mentorship and the guidance that I get to provide to junior officers um, and other officers during the disasters and the public health emergencies. And we have a term for that, we call it force health protection. And that is you're working with the force that is out there to um, ensure that they are able to physically, psychologically, mentally, emotionally, that they are able to carry out the mission that is in front of you. Um, I'll give you an example. I deployed to the border back in 2019. Yes, 2019, because it was the year I got married and I just, I didn't stay home much after I got married <laughs> to my husband. Um, I deployed there twice and that was my job. That was my full-time job to provide forest health protection to a set of nurses that were providing care literally like on the border. But as you can imagine, that's very challenging. You're seeing things on TV. You don't quite know what you're going into. You get on the ground and then, you know, there's a new reality because you see what you're actually working with, but you're also having people come in all day, all night that have, uh, medical issues and they're doing the treatment and they're triaging them to say, okay, yes, we can treat them here or 
no, we really have to send them to the hospital. And so I am that person that they talk to. And at first I kind of, um, I got, I built rapport through apples and oranges. <laughs> it's interesting because they were so busy that they wouldn't eat. And so I went out and I got all these apples and oranges and water. And I said, if you guys aren't going to eat, if you're not going to stop to eat, at least eat some of these fruits and drink this water. And then they was like, okay. And, you know, they started eating it and I would replenish it. And then eventually they started to talk to me more and started to open up. So I love that part of my job. I love the mentorship. I love helping other officers get through the mission because at the end of the day, if we don't get through the mission, there's people out there that are not getting help. And that is not an option. Wow, that's fascinating. So you're really working on all of the levels, right? So you're using your clinical experience to be able to one first, it sounds like work with your colleagues, right? To support them, to make sure mm -hmm. that they're supported so that then they can go and complete the mission and do what they need to do and be in the right mindset to be able to be fully present and, and hopefully not Absolutely. get traumatized along with the people that they're trying to help. Um, and I love That's a part of it. Yes. Yeah. And I love that example that you gave about apples and oranges, because it really takes it back to the basics about meeting your clients where they're at. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And that's what I saw. I was like, okay, they're not talking to me. That's my job. They're not talking to me, but um, they're not eating either. <laughs> so at least I can fix one of the problems. And I had my little car and I got, you know, what they needed. And then I, I also brought back journals and I said, hey, I know some of you are, you know, you're not talking to me and that's okay. Um, but if you, if you're having reactions, at least put it in this journal. And then maybe when you go back and you have your own therapist, you can talk to them about it. And then one um, doctor, MD on the team, she, she used it. I didn't know it, but like within the mission, she came to me and she said, I was using a journal and she's like, you know, and now I want to talk to you. And she said, when I first saw you, I said, no, I'm not going to talk to her. I'm not going to tell her what's going on with me. And she said, but I see you come every day and you serve with us. And then she was like, you made sure that we're eating. And then you gave me this journal and you said, you don't have to talk to me. I just want you to talk to somebody. And so she opened up and she started to share some of the reactions because she had young children. Um, and so she would think about them often uh, when she was doing the treatment and things like that. And so we processed that. So you're right. If you can't meet the basic needs, either whether it's, you know, you're working with uh, enforced health protection with other officers or you're in a hurricane and you're working with uh, disaster survivors, that's the first thing they're, I mean, yeah, they're, you know, visibly upset and eventually they want to talk, but initially they need to get warm. They need to get clean. They need to get the medical care. And then, you know, you make your way around and you start trying to open those doors. Hey, it's Catherine here. I hope you are enjoying this episode. We're going to take a quick break to listen to these ads from our sponsors. If you're planning to take the BBS Law and Ethics exam, the ASWB Master's or Clinical Licensure exam, or if you're studying for the MFT exam, then you need a proven program that can help you understand the exam questions and pass with confidence. If this is you, I highly recommend the Therapist Development Center. I personally use TDC to pass my law and ethics and clinical exams, 
and found the program provided me with everything I needed to pass with confidence. TDC's program integrates various ways of learning in an organized fashion, containing all of the information you need to pass without the overwhelm. And now, bonus, TDC is also offering a library of continuing education courses that fulfill your license renewal requirements and will support you in your career development. If this sounds like something that you need, visit their website, therapistdevelopmentcenter.com and use the code SWRISE10 at checkout to receive 10% off any of their CE courses, including their brand new course, On the Edge of Life, an Introduction to Suicidality. You can also check out the link in the show notes. Yeah, and that's really what we're good at is that we're able to anticipate what they need, right? Because for a lot of times and a lot of social workers, this isn't our first rodeo. Like we know what what mm-hmm. our clients are are likely experiencing. We know what the barriers are. We know how the systems and the environment is impacting them psychologically, physically, emotionally, mentally. Um, and, mm-hmm. and we know that better than they probably know that. Right. And yeah. so mm-hmm. being able to anticipate their needs and just meet them where they're at, because if you would have said, like, pulled them aside and be like, Hey, my job is to talk to you. So let's talk. Yeah. <laughs> that <would> not work. <laughs> like nothing to say to you. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. so, um, so I'm wondering you're okay. You're at LCSW, but you have a leadership mm-hmm. role. Do you consider yourself a macro social worker or a micro or both? Both. And I say both because I started 100% as micro. I was working um, at DSS and then I took a job with juvenile justice as a therapist in a locked residential and then I worked with homeless veterans. So I was providing direct service, direct care, uh, therapy, um, even started to do some substance abuse certification courses in um, that process because of the level of substance abuse and addiction that I saw with the girls in the lock facility. Um, and then from there, I put on the uniform and started working at SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration. And that's when I feel like I started to go macro. And even at the VA, I was in a leadership position there. So I started the macro there, but they would find me like in the office doing direct care (laughs) and remind me that I was supposed to supervise the team, not do the job of the team. But um, so I consider myself both now. And the reason why is because I do serve in that chief role um, and I help with programmatic and operational decisions, of course, absolutely. Um, but when I'm in the field and it happens all the time, like I was sent on a training mission in Kodiak, Alaska on this Island in Alaska. And that time I was committed to only do macro. I was only going to do administrative work, um, like, you know, oversee these, uh, psychologists and, um, and, and licensed clinical social workers. And then they have what they call behavioral health techs, which they're not licensed, but in the military, they can do some level of like counseling with uh, supervision. And so we were, I was gonna supervise these people 
and I was going to, you know, look at the terrain and make larger decisions. I was in a operations center, so I wasn't even with them. Um, and so I was committed. I'm doing administrative. It's going to be macro, uh, not really working necessarily in deeply with policies, but there was that that part of it because you're working with generals and and things like that. And even there, uh, we had a suicide. We were living, we were staying on a base, on a Coast Guard base, and we had a suicide. And that behavioral health position was vacant because it's Kodiak, Alaska. Who wants to live in, you know, the middle of nowhere where it's severely cold? So immediately they knew that, you know, this team of docs and therapists and, you know, social workers were there and they came and they said, where's that social worker? Oh, that's me. So I started doing clinical work. A couple of days later, um, the um, a Coast Guard member, his son was seven. He had autism. He went missing. They came back. We need that social worker. I had to be the counselor to the family, the direct, their direct special counselor, because first of all, the, these are Coast Guard members, and um, it's a tight community. So everybody knows everyone. I mean, the island is like what, 30 miles long, and that position was vacant. So they needed me to step in and become a clinician. And that's what I did. So I can't turn it off. Sometimes I don't want to turn it off, but I know I can't because there's always going to be that moment where I'm there to be an administrator or to be the chief or lead, do policy, and that need for me to come step out of that macro mindset and come to the micro mindset will be there. And in that case, I had to do it. And, um, you know, I did both. I did macro and micro, so made it work. Wow. It sounds like there is never a dull day here. No, when you're in deployment, you will get so many surprises. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> it's never dull. It is never, even with, you know, when I'm in the office and I'm working on policy related stuff, it's still not dull because these are things that matter. And these are things that when the disaster happens or, you know, the next hurricane or flood fire, um, that it's going to impact how we, how we deploy, how we work, what we focus on. So you really have to think on that micro level, because even if it's not me going out there to do the work, I'm sending my uh, colleagues to do it. And so if I've created some procedures and policies that will limit them from being able to do what I know they need to do, then I'm not helping them. And, um, and I think that's important for me to, to continue to get in the field and do the work because it's a reminder of when you're making decisions and when you're with the top leaders and you're making recommendations that you have to keep the client that's at, at the center of those decisions. So. Right. That's, yeah, that sounds like a lot of work, but it sounds fun though at the same time. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I, I'm wondering when there's not a natural disaster going on or deployment, um, are you working? Like what, what do you do in your off or in the <laughs> off? I don't know if it's off times, but. <laughs> yes, we get that question a lot. Like when you're not deployed, what do you do? Um, and so the answer to that is yes, we continue to work. We, um, we train, we get ready. Uh, we partner with DOD all the time um, at Fort Detrick or 
um, somewhere, whatever fort there is, I'm there and I'm training and uh, learning about medical and biological um, potential disasters. And we're doing field exercises where they have these, you know, very realistic bodies that have different, um, you know, heart attacks and things like that. And we try to figure out, okay, if we had a mass casualty situation, they'll like set this up for us. And then we have to triage it. Who are you gonna work on? There's chemicals on this person. How do you uh, decontaminate them? Like we're doing that kind of thing to be ready. Um, hopefully we never have to use those skills, but we're constantly training, being ready. I, I do, um, like I did a pre-hospital trauma life support um, certification out at Fort Detrick. And I, you know, I love social work. I'm not trying to move into the medical side of things, but I've had that experience where I was the only person there and the nurse fell and twisted her wrist around in a circle. And I was the social worker there and asking her, well, how do you feel about that? Really wasn't the right question at that moment. Um, I had to get her help and I, I found the help and we got her, you know, where she needed to go. But when I came back, I shared that story to my leadership and I said, while I'm never going to try to get out of my realm as a licensed clinical social worker, there are situations that will put you in, um, in a situation where you need to respond and you need some basic medical skills because this lady was in a lot of pain and she was about to pass out and her bone was sticking out of her, her hand. And um, here I am, just her luck. All the doctors were gone. The other nurses were gone. We were hanging together. You know, it was like we went out to eat together that night and um, she got me. So we are constantly training. The other thing that I'm constantly doing is I'm writing. This is a, a very new team. Um, this team started in 2021 because we've had so many deployments. COVID in 2020, the border in 2019, Hurricane uh, Maria, uh, Irma and Maria. It was just like a flood of deployment. And as I mentioned earlier, we're stationed at these other agencies. So we're working a day job, you know, most people are. And so we kept pulling these officers over and over. Hey, I need you to deploy here and there. And then they realized, you know, we need our, we need a core team that we don't have to ask an agency, hey, can I borrow them for three months? They, they stay here. And the only thing they do is deploy and they prepare to deploy and they, they go out and they go out fast. And that is when I joined the first and that is what the first is. So we are managed by the Office of the Surgeon General by our headquarters and we sit and we wait. So it's like we do, like when we're not deployed, it's always still so busy because you're training and you're preparing for the next deployment. And in my role as a chief, I am setting up operations, SOPs, uh, the standard operating procedures, um, and I'm mentoring. So there's never a dull day in my life, even when I'm not deployed. Yeah, that's awesome. So I, you answered one of my questions was how long are these deployments lasting? Are they typically three months? So they can be um, typically 30 days. Um, there was a time when we didn't deploy so much when I came into the Corps 2012. I mean, we had deployments going on, but it wasn't, you know, these issues that we have now. Uh, and so we would go out for like two weeks and then go back to your station and, you know, go back to your day job. And then that changed and it became 30 days and it became 60 days and 90 days. 
So my longest was 90 days, and that was a COVID mission. Um, my shortest now, since everything has changed, has been 30. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you're, if you also integrate some of that travel social work in there as well. <laughs> Absolutely. How fun. Absolutely. So you, you kind of touched on it already, but I just want to um, throw the question out there. What would you say is your favorite part of your job? Um, my favorite part of the job, and it happens at a particular point in the process, is when we're there and we understand what the mission is because sometimes you get a mission and then you get there and you're like hmm, no this is a little different from what the ask was there's a different need here because you do that assessment so once you get in that sweet spot of i know what they need and then you start providing it it is at that point that it is my favorite part of the job because at that point i can provide a calming force in the middle of chaos and I'm able to do it and my anxiety has calmed down. I'm focused. I've identified the need. I'm in the execution phase um, because I'll be honest, when it, it's, it's yet to fade, I've had 10 deployments and I'll get more this year. But when you get the call, you get that notification, there's like these little butterflies that come in your stomach and anxiety that comes over you. And, and you try to, you know, you, you manage it, but it's there because you know you are about to go into the unknown. Like for COVID-19, when I got that call in March, I mean, I knew I was going to deploy. It was just like, when am I going to deploy? And when they called and they said, you got about 24 hours to get ready, because this, at this time, this team, the first team did not exist. Um, and I was stationed with DOD, so I was, I was the chief of traumatic brain injury for the Department of Defense. And I called my supervisor. I had just finished working out. I called my supervisor and I said, hey, I got this mission. It's in New York. And there was so much anxiety that I felt like of going to New York. At that time, there was no vaccine. I, we, really, we really didn't know a lot about COVID-19. It was just all fresh and new. But fast forward, when I get there, and then I learned I'm the chief of behavioral health, fast forward a little bit more, and we're operationalizing the mission. We're setting up the, um, the meditation room and the, you know, the peace room kind of, kind of a thing where people could come and just, just let go, cry, whatever, do yoga, meditate, whatever you needed to do. And we're seeing patients. That's when, that's when it's the best part of the job, when you're at that point. Leading up to it, you're building to it. But once you get into the flow and you're executing the mission and you're helping people, that's the sweet, the sweet spot. That's the best part. Yes. And I love the way that you, that you talked about this because a lot of social workers, especially new social workers and, um, and social work students, they feel this anxiety around the unknown mm -hmm. and it's mm -hmm. completely validating to hear that you also feel this anxiety around the unknown and that it's normal right it's a human response it's normal it is um it's, it it reminds you that you know you're human and you you don't know it's it's uncertain and you're headed into it or you're trying to figure it out but once you get there and you get into that space and you realize okay now I know what I'm doing then you can just you know you can move it forward and so you know like I said it's been 10 missions 
And every time I get that call, no matter what the role is, they'll say, oh, you're going to go do behavioral health. Oh, you're going to leave behavioral health. Or sometimes I get new positions now. They start to, once they figure out you have a, a skill set of working with people, then they say, oh, well, maybe you can just lead everybody. So I get these different roles in uh, at different times. But I always get that the butterflies always come up. That anxiety always is there. And I embrace it. I don't, you know, at first I was like, oh, I'm going to go away. It's just a, you know, first time, first time deployers, anxiety. No, it happens every time. And, but I, I use it, I recognize it, and I move forward with it and I manage it. Yeah. And that's the important part is that you are able to move forward with it, right? Because you can't actually get comfortable until you move forward into the unknown, into the uncomfortableness. And then you're able to be like, okay, you know, we figured this out, right? Which I, mm -hmm. I think is a process Absolutely. for a lot of our work, if not all of our work, right? Because we never know what the client's going to say. We never know how a session's going to go. We never know how the day is going to go, but it's stepping mm -hmm. every single day, every single, maybe like hour into the unknown say like, whatever it is, we'll figure it out. Yeah. And, and just being willing to sit with that. It's a feeling of discomfort sometimes, but being willing to sit with the discomfort. I was doing a leadership class and that was one of the things that um, it was identified for me to work on. I don't like being uncomfortable. Most people don't, but um, they said, you have to learn how to sit with the discomfort. And so that's, you know, I've been focused on that. And I was like, that anxiety that I get in the pit of my stomach, when I get that call that I'm about to go do something that I've never done before, and I'm going to figure it out when I get there, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah, definitely. What, is, what would you say is the most challenging part of your job? The most challenging part is telling my family that I'm leaving. They know what my job is. I mean, it's no secret. Everybody knows my mother in, in the Carolinas and my sister. My husband is here in Maryland. And it never gets easier um, when you have to let them know, hey, I'm leaving. And then the other part I put in there, and you may not hear from me for a while. If there's service, then I'll call you eventually. Even if there, um, if there isn't service, I'm not going to call you at all because I don't have that capability. Um, and then the part of, and I'm just going to be so busy that I might work 14 hours or 16 hours. And when I go home or wherever I'm sleeping beside other people, it's going to be too late to call you. So you may not hear from me for days or maybe a week or two weeks. And um, it's always hard to say that. It was the hardest time to say it was during COVID. And everybody was like, oh, no, not New York. You know, um, other times, you know, I'm going to the border or hurricane. And they're like, oh, wait, you're going to, the hurricane didn't hit yet. You're going to go before it hit. Yeah, I'm going to go before it hit. <laughs> yes, they give me that look like, you're going to really go before it, you're going to fly into there. a hurricane. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, yes, I'm going to fly there before it hits. <laughs> so um, it's always very difficult to get them to understand. They're like, well, why would you do that? Well, who's going to save you? And I was like, well, the plan is that I'll get there and I'll be safe and nobody will need to save me, but I'll be in place once that hurricane hits. And then people need to get to the shelter because after the hurricane is there, you're not getting in, you're just not going to get in. And these people, they need that medical care immediately. They can't wait eight hours. They can't wait 
two days, you need to be there ready to operate. And that's what we do. We go in, we set up the shelters, we set up the bed, and we wait. And we tell them where we are. When you need us, come. And they come. They fill those shelters up. So wow, that's the hard part. Yeah. Can I just say, like, one, I'm going to say what people are thinking right now. Thank you so much for your service. And two, Thank you were such a badass. That's amazing. <laughs> I need to say that to myself in the mirror sometimes. Maybe that'll help the anxiety. <laughs> yes. You are a badass, Commander Stephanie Felder. Okay. <laughs> I'll take that part of the recording and save it on my phone and play it before I deploy. Listen to this. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you so much. <laughs> but yeah, that's the job. Awesome. That's what we do. Well, wow, that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. And now I'm wondering another thing that people are wondering. I know we're all thinking about it. What would be the salary range that we would be looking at in these types of roles? Well, um, so my position, a chief position, is typically like a G is 14. So I have to break it down in two ways. So I'm going to do the civilian way because there's positions like this that are just government no uniform and that would be around a gs14 and up and a gs14 starts around 99k so you're looking at about a hundred thousand dollars as a gs14 employee um so for us i get paid as um based on my rank so i'm a commander i'm an 05 commander so everybody in the public health service everybody in the uniform services whatever uniform service you are you're paid by your rank. And so, um, and it's very similar to what you see with the GS-14 because we're somewhat, we're like congruent to um, that pay scale. So you're, it's, it's not a bad deal. You're getting your salary, you're getting, um, we have a housing allowance that's not taxed and there's other perks there. So I talked about from the, the GS side, the civilian side, but on our side, there's also a GI Bill that's free education, and you really can't put a dollar sign to a free education. Um, there's free medical care and, uh, well, no cost medical care. So for you and all of your family members, so that's a part of it. And um, and I said the housing allowance, which is not tax, which makes a, a big difference. So, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not a bad thing. It's not a, um, when I first came into social work in my first job, and I was making like 45K, I was like, oh boy, how will I pay my student loans, you know? Um, <laughs> but then I started working in the federal government. I came in as like a GS-12, and that was around like 70s at the time, 70,000. And then I came into the Commission Corps, and I was an 03, so I had 03 uh, pay, and then I was an 04, and now I'm an 05. And we top out at like 06, where you're a captain. And then um, from there, there's no more like general ranks. It goes to like an admiral, which is the 07, and it kind of goes from there. Um, but when I came into the Corps, I was pretty pleased with, with my salary from that point on. And the benefits, the benefits are great as well. So just to reiterate this, you are an LCSW, and yes, it is possible to make a very good living and a very good salary as a social worker. Absolutely. You can make six figures as a social worker um, if you come into the public health service. You will. I mean, 
you will. There you go. If you if you advance, if you advance. Yeah. And it takes <laughs> no, it takes time. People will. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it takes time. It takes time. But I mean, anyone that's interested, they can go on the website right now and you can look at the pay scale and um, you'll see how it increases and how it goes up over years and, you know, with experience and with Frank. And they can also look at the GS levels as well and kind of look at maybe look at from 11 up, because if you have an LCSW, I doubt you would come in less than a GS 11. So just look from there and oh, you'll see that it can be quite beneficial to serve your country at times. Yes. Yeah. And this is important. So if you're listening, you know, I talked about goal setting um, a couple episodes back in 110. And so this is important. Like if we know where we want to go, then this is how you can start getting there. Like we want to be strategic. We want to know like what kind of experience do we need? What are we looking at? You know, is it going to be worth Mm -hmm. it? So, um, so, you know, this is part of that planning process. And I'm wondering for you, like, do you have any advice or tips for the people who are listening right now that may want to pursue a similar career path um, that you have or like to get into this area, like Mm -hmm. any tips that you have for us? Sure. So definitely you have to do your LCSW because um, the public health service will not hire unless you have that. It is an amazing time to be a public health social worker. Um, We are looking for social workers um, at this time. So And our focus is the underserved. So if you're like, okay, well, I'm going to go to the website and taking a look, Um, you know, maybe you're working towards your LCSW and you're working with any underserved population because there will be an interview process. There'll be like a, you know, a personal statement. All of that will be a part of it. And we're looking to see, is this a social worker that will be dedicated to the country um, and dedicated to serving on behalf of public health service? And so we look for people that are working with the underserved clients. And you know, that's a bit of everything in social work from homeless to HIV AIDS. And so, I mean, there's so many places, elderly. So there's so many places um, that you can be working. You don't have to be in government. You could be in private practice. Um, I have a mentee right now who her, her thing is HIV AIDS. And so she works in, in New Orleans and She's, you know, preparing to come to the um, public health service. She's working towards licensure now, and she's with the bite population. One of the positions that I had was at HRSA at the Health Resources Services Administration, and I worked in the Ryan White program all about HIV AIDS. So you can, if you're doing social work, if you're doing true social work, whether it's on a macro level or a micro level, you will be able to speak to your care and your values for the underserved. And you will be um, a good applicant for the public health service. And then of course we have our other fitness standards like the other services as well. So, you know, that you have to be fit um, and prepared. But other than that, you know, I would say if you're interested in it, go to the Public Health Service uh, Commission Corps website, take a look. If you're already licensed and you're like, hey, I'm ready to go, start the process start the application process and go for it. And if you have questions, uh, you feel free to reach out to me. Yes, that's amazing. Well, with all of the, um, the different things you have going on with the family and your work and the job and deployment, you have so much. How do you practice self-care and de-stress? 
Well, um, last year I started self-care Sunday. And so um, <laughs> I had to make something because it just wasn't, I wasn't doing a good job with self-care. And so at least one Sunday, the last Sunday of the month, um, I do a day, a Sunday, and it's just for me. And I do like a massage. I have, I go to Starbucks, you know, and I just, I do basically nothing, no computer stuff. I just relax. And I take that time for me. Um, I like to do yoga. So on that day, I make sure that I do a few yoga sessions. Um, I make time for meditation. I, it's kind of like my cheat day for my diet too. So I indulge and I enjoy. And I say, at least if you're not doing this, like, you know, on a regular basis, at least once a month, Stephanie, you have to have that time for yourself. But in the meantime, when it's not self-care Sundays, um, I do yoga, I do meditation and spending time with my family like I double down on that for some people they're like okay I do that all the time but when you're deployed and you don't get that opportunity that is really self-care and de-stressing like I'll take a trip to uh, South Carolina and um, we don't live too far from Myrtle Beach so I'll go and grab my mom and we'll stay on the beach I exercise working out is definitely like the long walks it helps a lot it helps to clear my mind and then um, the other thing that is really important is um, I debrief, I meet with other clinicians. Like I uh, have one clinician, Dr. B, um, and I met her through Catholic University through my PhD program. She's at LCSW. Whenever I come back and I'm feeling overwhelmed, I debrief with her. I have people on my team, uh, Lieutenant Commander Bynum and a Lieutenant Christine Napa that they, they know when I'm stressed. They already been around me so long that when I'm stressed, like they're, they're pulling me to the side and they're saying, Hey, you need to take this day off or, you know, get a little rest or they, they'll let us know. And we're supposed to do that. Like we call it the buddy system. So whoever you're deployed with, you tell them up front, you know, when I get stressed, um, I don't eat that much. And, you know, and I tell Bynum this because we, uh, Lieutenant Commander Bynum, because we deploy together quite often. She knows when, like I stop eating, She'll say, you're under a lot of stress. You, we go to lunch and you're picking your food. And I literally, I'll pick it. Oh, I'm not hungry. And so she knows that. And I start to drop weight because I'm not eating as much. Um, and I get more to myself. I don't want to talk as much. And so as my buddy, she recognizes these things in me. And she'll say, Felder, you're, you're getting too stressed. And you need to do something to balance it out. And you receive that information. It's, it, she's uh, one rank lower than me. But when she comes to me and she's telling me she's seeing this in me, I respect that and I take that and I step away from the situation. And sometimes it means, you know, maybe the next day you don't come in or maybe you take a little more time off. But I do a readjustment. I do uh, an evaluation to make sure that I'm addressing what I need to address. So there's a whole host of things, but having someone to talk to is critical in the work that we do. Yeah. And that's so important. And the per your buddy can be really anybody that you feel open and able to share that with and comfortable with, and that they know that you can be held accountable and that you're going to just take mm -hmm. that and absorb it and do what you need to do with that information and not, not snap at them. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Where can people connect with you? Um, so LinkedIn is really good because I, I constantly go on there. 
Um, also, they can always send me an email um, at Catholic University. So there's um, 33 Felder, which is F as in Frank, E-L-D-E-R at C-U-A um, dot E-D-U. So 33 Felder at C-U-A dot E-D-U. And then my other email is at Tulane University because I teach there sometimes as well. So that's S Felder at Tulane dot E-D-U. So they can reach me by email with Catholic or Tulane, or they can also find me on LinkedIn. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Social Workers Rise. If you love this episode, be sure to subscribe and text this episode to a friend. If you want more, there are a few ways we can get to know each other and work together. First, definitely subscribe to the Friday resource email list. The link is in the show notes. And that's where you can learn more about the courses I offer, including Clinical Essentials for the Future Therapist and the Pulse Basics for Medical Social Workers. I'll also be sending out occasional tips and resources and other happenings within the social work industry. And for all your clinical supervision needs, be sure to visit risedirectory.com. This is a national directory of clinical supervisors for social workers, and we also provide free resources that you can use within your own clinical supervision. Lastly, if you have more individualized needs, I do offer coaching, individual consultations, and am available for public speaking engagements for social workers and change makers. Lastly, the boring legal stuff, but very important. The information in this podcast is not meant to be a supplement for therapy, professional advice, or clinical supervision. This content is provided as is solely for informational purposes. It is not legal, health, or safety advice. I am not advising you as a therapist. Organizations should engage their own experts to ensure any adoptive measures are compliant with applicable laws and standards in their jurisdictions. The opinions expressed by individuals or organizations are their own and do not reflect the views or opinions of Social Workers Rise or Catherine Moore. References to specific products or organizations do not constitute any endorsement or recommendations by Social Workers Rise.